Welcome, everybody, to episode 49 of the Long Delay Generation Jihad podcast. We are a couple weeks behind schedule here. Not that we even have a schedule at this point, Bill. I am, of course, Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here with Bill Rojo. Bill? Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are... Yeah, we are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we've been running FTD's Long War Journal for a very long time now. It is indeed a long war. Uh, well, this week, I think we're going to touch on a couple different topics. We'll sort of do a roundup. Um, one, of the things, uh, one of the reasons why we're behind on the podcast is we're trying to schedule content around different themes, you know, figure out how to have podcasts that delve into different topics. Um, and that takes a while, unfortunately. And uh, basically, there are other reasons, too. Bill, you were in Denver for a nice national hockey tournament, and uh, that sounds like fun. I wish I was there. Yeah, my girls, girls are, uh, are uh, ice hockey players, uh, so we they made nationals. So, yeah, it took up a little time, a little, got a little skiing in. It was a lot of fun. Also, Tom, I've been just jammed up so badly with Afghanistan. It's, you know, work. We, we got, we'll get it out. We'll get it. We'll get it back together. Yeah, and I've got, I've got, uh, I've got, I'm backlogged about ten pieces at this point from covering different stuff. It's just ridiculous. I mean, I've still got stuff from two weeks ago that I haven't finished writing up. So it's just backlogged with a lot of work. But we could talk a little bit about it on the podcast, which always acts like a therapy session anyway for us. Um, so uh, the other thing is, we both got the second dose of the vaccine. That you know, that it wasn't a big deal for me, but you know, we were going to record. I think it was you know a week and a half ago, and I definitely was out for about a day and a half, very tired. Uh, you got, I think you had a lesser reaction than I did. Just a sore arm. I was good to go. I was exhausted, man. I was I was asleep, and it was I was out for the count. You know, my wife will tell you, I went to bed at before eight thirty at night, and I didn't get up until after six thirty the next morning, which is for me is a very long night of sleep. So, uh, you know, cause I usually battle, you know, all sorts of sleep issues. So, um, all right, well, we're back. So here's episode 49. We're inching closer to episode 50. I think I, a couple episodes ago, I teased episode 50 was coming and, and then we take a hiatus. We'll eventually get there, you know, we're sort of, you know, I guess for the mathematicians out there, it's sort of like an asymptote, you know, where you could have sort of inching toward the asymptote, but you never actually get there. You know, that's maybe what episode 50 is going to be for us. Maybe we should have an episode 49 and a half or something. I don't know. Uh, uh, all right. So first topic we'll, we'll delve into a little bit is um, how Al-Qaeda has reacted to recent events in Israel and Gaza and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Obviously, this is not, um, you know, these issues... When it comes to these conflicts between Israel and Hamas and related issues, this isn't sort of in my wheelhouse. Um, but the um, the way I've always approached this is, of course, Al-Qaeda comments on this stuff. And Al-Qaeda's commented on Israel and, and agitated against Israel for years. What I always say to people about this is, you know, Israel, or I'm sorry, Al-Qaeda likes to use Israel as a talking point in its messaging for rhetorical purposes to drum up support and drum up anger. Um, but of course, Al Qaeda has had very little to do with the actual conflict uh, involving Israel and Hamas and other parties. Um, you know, now that there's there are some small Al Qaeda groups or Al Qaeda link groups, I should say, that are involved. Um, you know, one of them is Jaish al Uma, um, which uh, claims some early rocket launches against Israel in this re- recent uh, conflagration here. Um, so there is there is a story there, uh, but it's a small part of the story, I would say. But rhetorically, Al Qaeda has always has always has always used Israel as part of its messaging, even though it doesn't have much to do with um, the actual conflicts. Now, uh, what I would say when I say is always used as part of its messaging, when I went through Al Qaeda statements, I built a database at one point of Al Qaeda statements, and I just went through and categorized the different themes that are in them. 
And it definitely was a um, significant theme was agitating. It's, of course, everybody knows the Zionist crusader conspiracy that bin Laden imagined um, was at the heart of everything. And in some of the recent statements that we see now coming out, um, we see that theme, of course, reprised once again. It's been a it's been something they've always harped on for years. Um, but, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about the few statements and what I think is noteworthy about them and what um, isn't noteworthy. Now, first thing, there are several things I think are noteworthy, Bill. One is that you see, it certainly appears like there's a coordinated messaging campaign, right? I mean, you've got Al Qaeda. Yeah, yeah Al Qaeda. Didn't two groups, uh, I think it was AQIM, and didn't they issue the same message? Or am I. Well, that, they, it was very similar worded messages. If I well, AQIM and, and, and JNIM issued similar messages, uh, greetings for. Uh, oh, that's what I got. The, yep. the, ho- the holiday, for the holiday, but not, not, on, not on when it came to dealing with Israel. AQIM had its own. I'm going to get to AQIM statement in a second. They had a two page statement, which I think is probably the most interesting statement that's been released on all this. I think. But you definitely see some coordinated messaging. You see, I, I think anyway, I think you see it with um, Al-Qaeda senior leadership, then AQIM, um, which, by the way, may include some Al-Qaeda senior leaders. Uh, then you see it also with, um, you know, some parties out of Syria, including uh, Samuel Aradi, who's a, a senior Sharia official and cleric in Harris al-Din, um, that seemed to be, you know, dealing with some of these issues as well. Obviously, his statement, his his video um, and you see it with AQAP. You see, just I think there's definitely some coordinated messaging here across the board, which again speaks to at least some some, some form of media cohesion um, as this all comes out. Now, Bill, uh, one of the the Al Qaeda senior leadership message came in the form, uh, the first one anyway, came in the form of on the fear, on the fear Bolton. Now, I I love that this thing pops up <laughs> online on these on these on these social media channels because anybody who's been following Al Qaeda media knows. Now, the fear comes and goes, right? It's like on it, it's like on edition thirty-four. It's sort of like the Generation Jihad podcast of the Al Qaeda world because they have like these long delays in producing them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they're and they're and they're inexplicable, right? So all of a sudden, on the fear comes up, and they have the thirty-fourth edition of it. You know, this I haven't seen it on the fear. I don't know when the last time I saw it on the fear was. Um, it definitely comes and goes. This is the thirty-fourth edition of it, and that you know the content of that wasn't really all that interesting. It was just basically a reprisal of Bin Laden's greatest hits when it comes to the Palestinian cause. You know, it's sort of repeating the the common you know, you know your blood is our blood motto that they use in their propaganda all the time. Um, it's a rhetorical tool that Al Qaeda uses. So, other than the fact that on the fear resurfaced again <laughs> after all these months. And who, I mean, who, I mean, I, I, yeah, I always kind of imagine like, what's the Al Qaeda production meeting for on the fear? You yeah. Know? Like, I mean, is it, it's, it, it's a, certainly worth something of its own. I've always wondered what, why do they even need that when they have Al Sahab and, and other outlets that produce more comedy? Well, it's, it's put, it's put, it's put out by Al Sahab, but I mean, the point is like, why, why, why even have this branded yeah. Bolton at this point? You know, I mean, I, I don't even, I don't get it. I mean, the Al Qaeda media operation is always, you know, obviously their people have been taken out of the game for years, but there is some continuity at the senior levels there too. We know that Abdul Rahman Al Mugrebi, for example, Zawahiri's so son-in-law, you know, he's he's was a presumably is still running Assad and has run it for many years now. He's, you know, the State Department describes him as the longtime director of it. You know, he support. I mean, I would assume he has a support staff, obviously, and I assume there are other people. You know, what's going on there? at Those production meetings. I mean, I, it's probably. Yeah, I kind of get the sense that it's sort of, you know, there's definitely a little bit of the same vibe going on with with, with our podcast. <laughs> you know, and, you know, like, you know, basically, you know, whoops, we didn't do anything without the fear for a couple oh, months. We, and all we, of a sudden we better boost that now. It's a, before it loses relevance. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I, and who and who decides that the, the message has to go in an on the fear, right? I mean, so it's just a two-page PDF bulletin that pops up online. Um, I, I found it on Telegram and uh, briefly on Twitter before a couple of accounts that were brought down. I also found it um, on a, a, one of the many websites I've had. I found it on Riot. Uh, one of the other websites I had to follow was Chirpwire, you know, which, I mean, good Lord. You know, I mean, there are all these different social media sites that these bastards are using to proliferate their messaging, you know, and then we have to go follow them all. And it just takes up a lot, a lot of time. So uh, anyway, on the fear resurfaced, it's out. The statement, again, it's not really all that interesting. Um, you know, statement just reprises Bin Laden's greatest hits. Now, the AQIM statement, which you mentioned, Bill, that one's a lot more interesting to me um, because that one, in that case, um, AQIM really lays into Mahmoud Abbas, uh, the head of the Palestinian Authority president, um, describing him as a secular traitor. That's a quote from the statement that we translated. Um and, you know, basically accuses the Palestinian Authority of being in cahoots with the Israeli government. And that statement also, AQM also lays into um, all of the Arab regimes that they have normalized relations with Israel. And they have a long, you know, a long message, a long line, a passage in there where they say the road to Jerusalem lies through. And they go through all these Arab capitals and Tehran. So they're saying, you know, basically all these different governments you know, our enemies. And they, they definitely encourage fighting against and jihad against all these different regimes. And Bill, what what got me about this was a point that you and I have discussed a long, a long time. Um, some people would look at that and say, well, you know, they're, they're changing, Al-Qaeda's changing course, and they're just focusing on the local, you know, the near enemy now. They didn't do that in the past. And this is such a, so ignorant. I mean, it's just a, mis, a complete misreading of the history of Al-Qaeda. If you go back to the history of Al-Qaeda, you can go 9-11 Commission Report, Going right back to the 1990s, they supported various local causes, so-called local causes against near enemies. Um, you know, it, it's it's never been, it's that's never been something they've been at, they've never been out of that business. You know, and you can you can you could build a, a whole history going right up through current day, present day. You know, if you look at the the guidelines that Zawahiri and Al Qaeda senior leadership issued in 2013, the general guidelines for jihad. You know, some people seized upon the early passages that talk about the you know, the, the primacy of uh, America as an enemy for Al-Qaeda and the jihadists, which is true, that language is there, and some of that language is in the AQIM statement. But then they have all these carve-outs, and they say, but all these other foes are our foes we're fighting, and we have to fight, and, you know, they, they identify party, you know, governments and actors in Africa and through, across the Middle East and all the way, of course, into Afghanistan and the, the government of Afghanistan. So this idea that there's this hard line between near and far enemy for Al-Qaeda. I, I just think that's a false dichotomy. It's true that Al-Qaeda went after the far enemy in ways that, that meaning America, in ways that other jihadi parties didn't. That's true. But that doesn't mean they weren't interested in the fight against the near enemy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's insane that almost 20 years after 9-11 that we, we have to have this discussion. You know, the the near and the far enemy are are equally important. They, the reason Al-Qaeda wants attacks the U.S. is to drive us out of the Middle East so they can attack the local regimes. They believe the United States is responsible for, for keeping these regimes afloat. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, Tom, it, you know, you said, we say it's a, it's a therapy session. It's like arguing, uh, was Al-Qaeda in Iraq part of Al-Qaeda's overall structure? And, you know, I'm just so tired of have to, having to, to make these arguments. It's just it's very clear. You watch what they're doing. You look, read what they're saying. You can see the strategy. Uh, you can see what their their objectives the, uh, of Al Qaeda is. 
Um, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to, to put all this together. And yet, you know, you have people that want to just say Al Qaeda only cares about the near enemy or Al Qaeda only cares about conducting terrorist attacks on the United States because they're just terrorists and that's all they want to do. It's far more complex than that. And it's why we're losing this war because our leadership has taken very simplistic views of what Al Qaeda is and what it, what it expects, what it wants to do, what its objectives are. And uh, yeah, that's why we are, we're here where we are today. And that's why you and I have to record this podcast and try and explain things that should be very obvious to everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when you, you talked about driving America out of the Middle East, I think that Al Qaeda always had two competing and even contradictory theories of that. One was the first, the Lebanon theory of 1983, where, you know, if we hit America hard enough, it'll withdraw from all these places and that will free up um, the space for their polit- their jihadi political revolution to overthrow these these near enemy regimes. Um, that was one theory of the case that they had. But then when that didn't happen following 2001, the other theory that the case that they went with was we're going to draw them into these insurgencies and bleed them dry. And that one, I think, has been more fruitful for them, obviously, um, especially when you look at a, a war like Afghanistan, which has been horribly mismanaged for many years now. Um and you know, and, and you, you mentioned why we're losing this war, I mean, the broader war against the jihadists. I think what I would say is, you know, I think it's it's been the case for a while that America has been trying to pivot away from a war structure entirely, from the idea that, and and basically get to a point where there's where the U.S. is sort of managing um, terrorist threats at the periphery, and we'll see how that goes. You know, I think that's basically where we're at now. You know, and that's been the that's been the drive for a long time, and explains I think the ambivalence and and the problems we've had in a number of different places. Yeah. And, t- and so Tom, on its point, your point, you know, absolutely. Right. So it thought we're talking the difference in its objectives versus how it's going to achieve those objectives. Right. Sure. So it thought that its objective is drive the U S out of the middle East. Well, how are they going to do it? A major attack would make the U S crumble. That didn't happen. So it, it changed right. its strategy and says, okay, then let's draw them into insurgencies. Let's bleed them dry. But the, but the objective of driving the U.S. from the Middle East sure. has always been the same. And that's what, you know, they're doing it in just in different forms and taking different strategy. That's what people fail to understand. They're, they're, they confuse objectives with, with, with tactics and strategy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a big bugaboo with the word strategy and in, in U.S. policy yeah, well, circles, but yeah. I won't, I won't, I won't go off on that now because I think the word, I think a lot of times people use strategy in foreign policy circles because they, they basically want to say something is X is not strategic for America to do, and so therefore we shouldn't do it. And it's just, it's all confirmation bias a lot of times, you know, uh, it's all circular uh, reasoning. Um, but let's go back to the AQIM statement here, where. Um, and I'll, I'll go back to that point at some point in the future. But let's get back to the AQIM statement here. What I thought was very interesting about it was just how much onus AQIM puts on the so-called secular traitors. Um, these are the parties that um, have supposedly befriended or normalized relations with Israel. And it's referred to just as the Jews in AQIM statement. You know, I think the the on the fear bulletin had a more anti-Semitic smear, even for the Jews, talking about them as, the, I think, something like the brothers of the the monkeys and pigs. I mean, it's a pretty anti-Semitic line, uh, which shows you that, you know, Al-Qaeda always has a, while they're trying to capitalize on the policy and the disputes here and all this stuff, they have the deeply anti-Semitic views of all this, of course, and that informs everything that they put out. Um, but back to the AQIM statement, they they even cast doubt on the, um, the statement even cast doubt on the efficacy of fighting the Jews, as the way they put it, um, basically saying that this won't work um, unless 
the jihadis go after those who have befriended the Jews and put them in the same category. Um, and, and even to the point of saying that basically fighting the traitors, the way AQIM calls them, should even take priority over fighting the Jewish infidels at times. Uh, that's what the statement, statement says. Uh, I think that's very interesting because it, it's, um, again, back to the near enemy, far enemy stuff. This is basically saying, yeah, the, the, the quote unquote Jews at the heart of the Zionist crusader conspiracy, but you know, they're, they're all in on it. We got to go after all of them. We have to go after these other parties. Oh, almost saying we have to go after these other parties or, or is saying we have to go after these other parties first because we can't actually defeat the Jews unless we clear out these people who are standing in the way. And I think that's an interesting – that is an interesting and noteworthy line. Bill. Yeah, Tom, it's it's all about unity, right? The, you're not going to win the war until you're unified. Uh, it's And they – so they're saying until our house is in order, until we get all on the same page, we – you know, and we – you know, we're not. I'm, there's a religious aspect to it as well, right? We're not going to get the approval from Allah to win our jihad until we, you know, until we're doing it the way that we believe it needs to be done, the way that the Quran says it needs to be done. So that's what they're, that's where they're going with this. It's, um, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of the criticisms of during the so-called Arab Spring with Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood, right? When Al Qaeda came and said. You know, you think you're going to, you know, you're going to gain power, but none of this is going to happen until you until you do this properly. You can't use Western methods to try to win this war. You can't use elections. And I think that's part of the criticism that they have with the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and, and things of that nature. Not not a perfect uh, uh, analogy there, but it just, you know, a lot of the messaging does remind me of the, the, the same criticisms from way back when where. You know, you got to fight. You got to wage jihad Al Qaeda's way, and that is the path to victory. All of this other stuff leaves us divided, and it's it's not approved by by Allah. Yeah, which you know, I think we'll, we'll move on from these statements, but I'll probably have more to say about some of them in the future. But you know, you're talking about the path to victory, and I think that opens up the next topic actually, because one of the problems they have, and you've seen this in their discourse, is that they haven't achieved victory anywhere, right? After all this time. You know, they keep saying this is the only way we're going to win is if we go, we do it Al Qaeda's way, which is supposedly Allah's way. And of course, this is a particular interpretation of all that. Um, that's not shared by most Muslims, of course, right? Um, but uh, the, the 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 bottom line is that they they claim that they they have the path to victory, and yet they haven't achieved victory anywhere after all these years, and have suffered a number of battlefield losses in terms of building when you in terms of building their Islamic Emirates. But there's a big, there's a potentially a big exception on the horizon, isn't there? There's now we now are closer to a victory in a place that matters much more to them than now it matters to the America, and that is Afghanistan. And you know we always tease each other about having to talk about Afghanistan on the podcast because obviously it's something you and I have talked about for so long now, and we have so many of the same points. But what I thought was interesting was you, you recently one of the reasons why this podcast has been delayed is you were working on updating your analysis, Bill of what the battlefield situation looks like in Afghanistan. You've maintained this this map, and it's an estimate. I should stress yes, this is an estimate of, of what the Taliban and al-Qaeda, other jihadi allies, the districts that they contest and control in Afghanistan. Now, they obviously contest far more districts than they actually control, however, um, or are estimated to have controlled. This is an estimate. This is this is something that takes a lot of analysis on your part to put together to figure it out. And I know you update it constantly when you find something wrong or you find something new or whatever. You, you're constantly working on it. But 
why don't you give us the punchline of what your estimate says? Because it sure looks like they're closer to victory now in Afghanistan than they've been anywhere in a long time. Sure. And, and I'm going to give it just a little, I don't know if we've ever done this on the podcast, but just a little background on the map. And, you know, look, we, we look at districts, a lot of these districts that are contested, I could probably easily call them controlled. Some of the ones that are controlled probably could move in the contested category. The reality is, is that you know, this information and when, is bad. when you talk about contested control, you're talking about whether or not the Afghan government, which has been stood up by the U.S. to this point, whether or not they actually maintain control of the district or whether or not the Taliban and Al Qaeda control the district. And then, of course, back in the days, ISIS, their branch had controlled, you know, 10 districts in Nangahar. Right. Like yeah, that some, well. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was a small. But anyway, the, the, the heart of the action really is whether or not the Taliban and Al Qaeda and their allies control or contest the district or the Afghan government. Right. right. And, and I don't think there's any doubt about the contested category. Right. So any of these. So here, here it is. Right. Here, what I came up with. Um, there's 407 districts in Afghanistan. Uh, think of them as counties in, in the United States. Right. Um, so of those, there are, so, okay, let me take you back. January, 2018, that's resolute they support. They tried to shut down the supporting of the districts, the reporting on the districts. They did so several months later. Uh, I estimated the Taliban controlled 45 districts and about 11% of the districts contested another 117. That's about 29%. So we're looking at about 40% of Afghanistan's districts either contested or controlled. And by the way, most of the fighting takes place in the districts that are contested. Um, and uh, often the, the, the government's uh, position in these districts that are contested is very, very tenuous. Um, the fast forward to today, we have 87 of the districts that I have estimated that are controlled uh, by the Taliban. That's about 21 percent. And uh, there are 214 that are contested. Uh, that's about 53 percent. So we're looking at 74 percent. Of the districts. Now, keep in. I'm gonna. So back when uh, I started this, I started this before Resolute Support actually did this. Um, they actually contacted me. I want to say in around. I started in 2014. It was just very limited information. They contacted me around 15, 16, and asked me about it, um, which I, I thought was odd. And I asked them. My question to them was, Why aren't you tracking this? I mean, you're sending people out in the districts, and you don't even know what's going on. But um, then they started providing an information to SIGAR, the Special Investigator General for Afghan Reconstruction. They started producing the map. And my data was, and theirs was always about 10 to 15 percent off. My picture was always a little darker, but I could prove how Resolute Support was fudging the data. They were um, in order to make things look a, look a lot rosier. So even the worst, the best case scenario that Resolute Support was um, providing was only about ten percent off of my data. So when they shut it down, so very, so so even so very comparable. Even even though there's a there's a discrepancy there, Absolutely. it's not like yeah. this is it's not it's not like your map was you know yes. uh, you know out of left field or completely different yes. ball game from what they were showing yeah, yeah i mean it's just basically it's at the margins whether or not some of these districts you know how you categorize yeah and, and what they were doing too i have contested government controlled taliban control they had and they changed it actually because they didn't like the wording they had like government controlled government influence contested taliban influence taliban controlled you know i always looked at that as a district's either contested or controlled right you, you know it's, it's you know they're trying to how do you, how do you, how do you influence a district without controlling it right i mean right. Either, you, either you control either you control the security situation or you don't yeah it, you that know? was always my view on this so where something was controlled and look i was able to prove this in, in a particularly like what they wouldn't release the data the full data 
Um, eventually I was able to get the information, but, um, before they started releasing me the information, I knew what they were doing. So if a district was Taliban, I knew it was Taliban controlled. It would show as governor or Taliban influence. And so once they released the data on Hellman and everyone knows what the security, like, you know, anyone who pays partial attention to what's going on in Hellman province knows the Taliban routinely controls seven to eight districts contests the the rest basically other than than one district right and they only claim like two to four were taliban controlled and you know it was they were really softballing the data so i was fine. yeah that's that's tall that's taliban country i mean it it's is. not you yeah. know this is yeah and and so right. i that's why i knew i had a high degree of confidence that might it was but again and i want to be very clear this is more of an art than a science i have to go through i have to sweep up information a lot of these districts we don't get any reporting on. So in, if I do see reporting on it, I'll update it. But I have to go through and sweep 700, 407 districts uh, every couple of months. You know, the ones that I see in the news, the ones that I'm looking at, um, they're, you know, that comes in. But every once in a while, I just got to go back through and sweep up 407. But what we just saw, we'll get back to the information, back to the punchline, as he said. With the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, with the U.S. launching airstrikes against the Taliban, um, at times to prevent them from overrunning provincial capitals. And that's all that U.S. air power has really done. Um, the Taliban basically doubled the number of districts it controls and basically doubled the number of districts contested over the last three years. And if we think that this security situation is going to improve when the U.S. secure, when, when the U.S. withdrawal is complete, um, you know, uh, look, I, the data doesn't tell me that, um, looking at how the Afghan military has fought and, how it's lost ground to the Taliban, even with the U.S. there. Um, I think things look very grim. I'm currently working on an analysis of what I think the current the Taliban offensive is going to look look at uh, look like. I needed to complete this map before I, I get to that, so that's probably be coming. Actually, I, I, it will be coming next week. It's it's on my desk. I just needed to get the numbers together, get the get the full picture, and um, you know, to, to summarize that really quick, you're going to probably see the Taliban take quickly take control of the south. Move, come up through the east, and then that fight for the capital is going to begin. Time frame on that, a lot of variables, but we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, that's for a future podcast. All right. So there, uh, there's several. So before you say it's a future podcast, one of the things that I I would love for you to do on these podcasts is walk through this because you your analysis. A lot of times you'll say something to me, and I'll be like, "Man, write that," you know, because. Right, because it, it, like two months later, it'll be tur- turn out to be exactly what they did or what was coming, you know. Uh, and that's you know that's obviously you're my friend, so obviously I'm, but I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. Like you know me, I'm I'm a I'm a ner- I'm a nerd who who tracks this stuff. One and, thing about Tom, you, know, you have to understand about Tom and I, our circles are small because we do not blow smoke. We are not the kind of people who tolerate fools. Um, and it's 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 a blessing and a curse in this business. I view it as a blessing because it keeps us honest. So I'll we'll leave it at yeah, that. Yeah, there have been, been a lot of fools commenting on the Afghan war too. I mean, it's part, part of the problem here. I mean, but you talk about the, so you talk about the data. Let's get, there's several things to build on here, what you're talking about. So the first thing is you talk about um, the data um, that the military was, been, was accumulating on it and they were putting out a version of it through CIGAR and I think the Inspector General, oh wait, maybe the Office of the Inspector General at DOD, in any event, they were putting out a version of this, and then they stopped, right? Now, this is one of the ways that Bill and I have been critical about the U.S. leadership and performance when it comes to the war in Afghanistan. 
this is not a metric that you and I were alone or you were alone in saying matters. This is an obvious thing that matters is how much territory the Taliban Contessa controls along with her jihadi allies. Of course that matters. Um, but the U.S. military itself said that this is the metric that matters in terms of, you know, it was General Nicholson, I believe, or you point to other generals too, who said this mattered. This was the metric that matters. So they say, the U.S. military leadership say this matters and this is how we're judging the success of the war effort. Oops, it's not going their way. It doesn't look good. And so what do they do? They they classify the data or they stop releasing the data. They bury the data. And they told this us that, uh, that the real this measure the of success Here you go. Yep. is reconciliation between the Afghan government it's and the, the progress, the progress, progress of political settlement between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And this is where the delusion then sets in, right? This is where the total, this is the last delusion, in my view, of the Afghan, the war in hey, Afghanistan. Tom, can I, can I make one comment before you go there? Mm, and sure. it's back to, I mentioned this briefly. So at this time, when they cut this off, they're telling us it doesn't matter what happens in the districts. While they're still sending U.S. aid workers in the districts, U.S. mil special operations forces go there. So they're to have us believe that it doesn't matter what's happening out there. Just from the standpoint that they – because they told us we're not gathering this data and releasing this data anymore. So just from a tactical point of view, the message they're putting out there is that we don't care what's happening out in the, in the provinces and the districts because all we care about is reconciliation. And meanwhile, in 2019, they didn't cut anything off then. So I just always found that to be frustrating and, and horrifying. But uh, go ahead, Tom. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to do Well, look, look I, I mean, I, I hope that, you know, if there are any junior officers out there listening to this and you're going to do a postmortem on the war in Afghanistan, what went wrong, because there's going to be a lot of commentary and a lot of analysis on that in the years to come. I hope that people that listen to this podcast, I hope you, you you are critical of the U.S. military leadership, right? This is an example where, and we have multiple examples of this, where they say, here's the standard for success. Whoops, the standard for success isn't looking so good. So we're going to classify or suppress the data that we're using to measure that, and we're going to change to another standard, right? And so they say, well, you know, the, the standard is, you know, how much ground we can keep out of the jihadis' control. That doesn't look so good. We're not going to talk about that anymore, and we're going to move on to this fanciful political settlement and pretend that the Taliban is really fighting for leverage in these these fanciful negotiations as opposed to fighting for victory, which is what they've been fighting for all along. Uh, and so this is this is poor leadership, right? This is this is a leadership failure, um, and and where Bill and I are, I think, very frustrated with all of this is there's never any accountability, right? If you're in the business world. Not all times, as we saw after the subprime mortgage crisis, unfortunately. <laughs> right. But but a lot of times in the business world, if you if you if you take a business strategy and you pursue it, and you're in the marketplace and you're competing in the marketplace, and, and you're competing in the stock market, and you're competing for investment dollars, and and you're competing for profits, and the strategy you pick fails, well, you're out, right? You either you have to you know you're going to need new leaders. You know, board of directors can 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 shareholders can vote to place management. There are there are competitive mechanisms to account for failure, right, and to correct course. And here's the problem: there are no competitive measures to account for failure when it comes to this stuff, right, and these things. And that's a problem, in my view. That's a huge problem because you you again you say this is the metric for success, you fail to achieve that metric for success, so you just change the metric, and that's not acceptable to me. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be acceptable to Americans. And part of why we understand the frustration, for example, with the war in Afghanistan 
is because of this stuff, right? I mean, what what are, what are you supporting if you're supporting that, right? It doesn't make any sense. How do I argue um, for a continued presence when we've had failed leadership, incompetent leadership, and leadership that has deceived us, has lied to us, frankly? Um, so you know, well, I mean, you know, I, what I would say about that is I don't know if they're just lying to us or lying to themselves, yeah. and you know, and and lying to us. I, to me, to me, whether or not they're actively know the truth and are covering it up or not is almost sort of secondary to the point that they're just incompetent. Yeah, right? Tom, on I mean, this issue, though, because the reason right, they this started issue. producing this data is because they thought it was going to show that the Taliban right. lost ground and that less of the Afghan population, because right. remember, the population control is big on right. this, too. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a second. Okay, good, yeah, because I want to explain why these these numbers probably are worse right. than what show on the website. Um, they thought that that was going to show improvement. What it did was it showed a 1% to 3% increase, decrease every quarter. So that doesn't seem slow like much, but over – Slow bleed. You just saw yeah. what 1% to 3% looks like over the course of three years. Um, uh, well, over the course – if, oh, if it's every quarter, I mean over yeah. the course of a year, looking at 10% potentially. That's right, you know? and then start doing that <laughs> you know, over three more. years. That, this, yeah, is why I mean, you yeah. per, this is why you got 50 Now, obviously, there could be spurts, right, and whatnot, sure. but this is how we got them to double the control in contested districts because it yeah. was looking bad. They knew it. They canceled it for that reason. And yeah, so look, uh, on some of the things, do I know that general so-and-so knows that there's more than 50 to 100 al-Qaeda? Like, yeah, maybe they're getting bad information perking up. Maybe they just, you know, I don't expect them to be complete experts. But on this issue, we know why General Miller canceled this um, because it made everything look bad. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, what I was trying to make the general point that they don't have to lie about everything to be incompetent. Right. right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. The, the, the point is that the, the point is that the overall picture here is one of incompetence and not being a straight shooter with what's coming on and not getting it right. And this is what I would say for future. Listen, I'm just a nerd, so who am I? So don't listen to me. I don't care. But if you're if you're in the military and you want to get things, make things better in the future, and you're a junior officer. You need to you need to deal with this, right? You need to deal with the fact that this this leadership is rotten. And you know, there are a lot of people who hate you and me because we say stuff like this, Bill. I don't really care, as you know. These guys have gotten this wrong for so long now and wasted so many lives and so much money. And there needs to be some sort of accountability going forward. And and I, I don't think I don't think uh, there ever will be. I think that's a problem. Yeah, you know? and we're not and talking what... people's bank accounts getting depleted by twenty percent. We're talking about people losing limbs or dying for for this type of incompetence and. Yeah. That's what the, I find utterly and, and totally. If it was, it was just a matter of ah, oh, we're losing profit or some money went down the drain, I might be able to just go, oh, well, you know. But no, we're talking lives here. It's the same thing with like letting Pakistan get away with what he got away with over the course of years, right? And that cost yeah. American lives in Afghanistan, and you, you know, again, you junior officers and Afghan lives and all yep. sorts. I mean, it just, it just kept, it, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. But you know, look now on, on the on the flip side, one of the one of the benefits of the ongoing American presence, one of the things they've gotten so called right, and you're, I want you to, to give give the nuanced explanation of this is it's true, and some people keep pointing to this as if it's a you know sort of the only thing that matters that the Taliban and al-Qaeda haven't controlled any provincial capitals as long as the U.S. and NATO are there. That's true. You know, the U.S. and NATO, the forces have basically prevented them from taking and holding, and really underscore underline the holding part, right, the, the, the provincial capitals. And, you know, they've obviously taken temporary control of several of them. You know, Farah, Ghazni, and Kunduz come to mind immediately. But they're, you know, in other places they uh, have, have gotten stronger as well and muscled up at times as well. 
Um, but the problem is that what they that they they know that they did basically the, our reading of that is they didn't want to expend the manpower to hold these provincial capitals while we're there with superior special operations capabilities and superior air, air superior and air superiority. Now that the U.S. and NATO goes out, they've basically built the noose around a number of these provincial capitals, and now they're just going to go in for the kill, right, Bill? I mean, that's basically the problem with anybody who says, "Well, Afghanistan's different. They don't. They after all these years, they don't control any provincial capitals." Yeah. But that was contingent on the U.S. and NATO having forces there. Now that the U.S. and NATO will not have forces there, guess what? That's going to change. Yeah, Tommy, very you, quickly. you're absolutely you – do I like your – put the noose around the neck. That's what they've done to the provincial capitals here. Uh, I estimate that there's 16 of the 34 provincial capitals are under direct threat from the Taliban. Now, can the Taliban take all 16 at the same time? No, I don't think they're capable of doing – particularly while the U.S. is not there. So this is what's – you know, this is another thing. By the way, that the generals, um, you, you know, in Afghanistan have misled the American public because they know what they they have this map. They know what the Taliban was doing. They're following a classic rural insurgency strategy of taking the, all these districts that are Taliban controlled are all rural, small population. Yeah, but the, and, and as you just said, this is the classic insurgency yeah. tech. This is not like this is. Listen, I'm not an expert in military. This is a revolution, Tom. Yeah. No, this is not exactly, but this isn't exactly, you know, you don't need to read three textbooks to figure this out, right? I mean, this is something everybody knows what they're doing, you know, or you should know what they're doing. I mean, look, I could write this, yeah. this strategy on the back of an envelope. Um, yeah. Anyone who has, uh, you know, a cursory understanding of guerrilla strategy understands what the Taliban, this map shows what the Taliban is doing. And that's what they've done. You, Tom, you, you put it perfectly. They put the noose around the neck of these provincial capitals. And this is where the Taliban trains. This is where they recruit training centers. They're, they're, they're running mines. They're, they're, I just read an article about how they, they, I think they control hundreds of, of mineral mines, including gold mines and gems, coal mines. They're, they're making millions and millions of dollars off of these. Of course, there's the opium, then they, they collect tax uh, cattle and crops and all of these things that the Taliban is doing. And yet this was downplayed by U.S. military commanders who knew exactly what was happening. The Taliban, as you said, they're not going to expend the energy to uh, take these capitals when um, I think per- – and, and, and hold them. And hold them. them. It's mainly to hold them. It's mainly to hold them, yeah. I think the Taliban – You know, people will say, well, they tried in Kunduz and they, twice, and they did it in Farah and Ghazni City, which, by the way, they took the, provincial, the center of the, each of those capitals and laid waste. I think those were more the Taliban showing the Afghan people what they can do while the Americans were still there. Some of this – like I don't like the messaging like everyone tried. This is a message. I think the Taliban – Look, they took a shot. They said, hey, maybe we can hold these. But at the very least, at the very worst, we've, you know, because a lot of these attacks, uh, what they do is just instill fear and keep Taliban or keep Afghans on the fence or get them to defect. You know, those were those were dry runs. The Taliban was finding out what they could do while the U.S. was there. And now they know what they can do when the U- we're going to find out what they can do when the U.S. is gone. And I think that the. You know, again, I think we're going to look at we're going to see, look, there's no way the Afghan security forces, if they want to remain cohesive and if they want to control areas in the center and in the north, and the north looks particularly bad. And, um, you know, I actually did a, a, a TV interview with the um, a former advisor with uh, the President Ghani, uh, Ghani uh, and uh, President Karzai. 
he absolutely agreed that the he said the South, the, the Afghan government is going to have to abandon large areas in the South and the East if it wants to control the center and, and retake these areas in the North where it's more capable. So this isn't just coming from me. So Afghans who are in the know, who understand Afghanistan and, and the the uh, political dynamics and the, the ethnic dynamics and where the Taliban's strong, they understand this. And, and so I think this is what we're going to see. Um, it's, it's, it's a very bleak picture. It's going to be a return of the Taliban, the return of the Islamic Emirate, and the return of al-Qaeda. Well, Al-Qaeda has been there the whole time. Yeah, so well, yeah. Return, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, return yeah, of yeah. the Islamic yeah. Emirate and the right. resurgence of Al-Qaeda, I think is... is well, the, I, I would say the, probably, uh, the way I put it is the announced presence yeah, of Al-Qaeda. Yeah. You know, they, I mean, they've been, do, they've been doing it in Thabat, Thabat, uh, Thabat, uh, Thabat, the Arabic publication, the newsletter, which is actually much more substantive than on the fear, which we discussed earlier. They've been talking about this all the time. I've got some some stuff I've been pulling from those, and you pulled from those as well. Um, some some maps of Afghanistan, that kind of thing. They're, they're there the whole time. I mean, it's just... It's just this is this is again one of the leadership failures here across the board was not being able to even give an accurate assessment of what Al Qaeda looked like in Afghanistan after all these years. I mean, it's pathetic. Um, but so you know, but when you talk about what the Afghan government's doing, I saw a interview on Spiegel with Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, in which he was saying, you know, there was ambiguity over the last couple of years about whether America was staying or going, and that that you know basically caused problems for them in terms of how they were going to go about war fighting. And I thought, man, oh man, look, look, I'm not looking to rag on Ghani at this point. I think he has a tough hand. I think there's a lot of people who couldn't play that hand. The Taliban and Al-Qaeda and the jihadis are ultimately responsible for the war and keeping the war going. And despite all our criticisms of the American and Afghan government side, and we have plenty of them, you know, they're they're the they're the real bad actors here that have kept everything going, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and the Jihadis. But Ghani's interview was just so clueless to me. You know, I mean, if you didn't know that once the US adopted these talks with the Taliban, which were rooted in Taliban apology and Afghan war revisionism, and said that we have to, we're going to prioritize a political settlement with the Taliban, even though there was absolutely zero evidence that the Taliban is interested in a political settlement and just wanted concessions. If you didn't know that early on, and you didn't know that as the talks began in 2018, you didn't know that by 2019, I mean, I just think that's sort of a convenient excuse, you know? I mean, you, you should have known that the, 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 the jig was up. We were saying since 2018, America's leaving. You don't understand. The, 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 the books are cooked here. The U.S. is getting out. A lot of people didn't believe us when we said that. I mean, I had people who were, you know, uh, who, who even served in Afghanistan who thought, no, no, we're going to stay no matter what. And I thought, no, you don't understand. What we see from State Department, Defense Department, and at that time, senior most levels of the Trump administration, including people we talked to. No, the U.S. was leaving. And, and Biden, President Biden had no, wasn't going to reverse course on all that. So, you know, but in that same interview, you just mentioned all the gold mines and everything that the Taliban, all the mineral mines and gold and all these different re natural resources the Taliban has been scooping up and getting ready for their, to support their emirate here financially. And in that same interview, Ashraf Ghani said, well, you know, not all is lost in Afghanistan. There's still plenty of things to um, invest in. And the first thing he he he, he mentioned were pine nuts. Uh, and I just thought, oh boy, you know, um, you know, look, again, I'm not looking to rag on Ashraf Ghani. I mean, I think he's got a tough hand here and he, you know, we'll see what he does here in the coming months. I mean, he could very well be fleeing at any time from Afghanistan or go down with the fight. Who knows? Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, if, if, if really the number one selling point you have for the economy right now for your economy is pine nuts, so that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, you're in trouble. Uh, you know, so anyway, uh, this is all, you know, I think it's all grim, dark thing, dark situation here, what's coming. You know, one other point on all this is I saw a news report where um, 
Biden, Biden administration officials were quoted anonymously saying that basically the Trump administration deal with the Taliban tied their hands. Now, look, I there's a lot you could say about the, the merits of leaving and staying and all that and debate. I don't want to relitigate all that here. But, you know, of all the arguments I've heard about all this, come on. Come on, right? That deal was told. We've we've gone on and on and on about that deal so many times. That deal was nonsense. You know that shouldn't tie to anybody's hands. You know, uh, in any way, shape, matter, or form. I mean, the, the, just the Taliban just showed up in Doha to get their concessions. That's it. You know, there was no. I mean, this is ridiculous. And they did nothing to satisfy the supposed counterterrorism counterterrorism assurances in that deal. So. You know, look, I understand arguments for getting out, but don't tell me that deal was why you had to get out. You know, Tom, that would be like Trump saying, oh, I'm sorry, I can't put aside the the Iran deal because it tied my hands with the Obama. No, if you don't like the deal, discard it. This is just complete. um, Especially in this case, because the Taliban, we know the Taliban hasn't complied with its supposed. So so like, you know, anybody knows in business that if you have a contract and one side isn't doing you know, it's it's totally insane to say, well, we had to get out of Afghanistan because we have this deal, even though the other party isn't doing anything to comply with the provisions of the deal. You know, I mean, it's just totally stupid. I mean, it, when you have when you have a business transaction in New York or somewhere else, anywhere in the business world, no, I forget New York, Silicon Valley, Washington, wherever, any any place, any place. You know, I mean, take one of the rural areas of, of America. If you have two parties to a deal and one party doesn't live up to its end of the bargain, does it, does that does the other party say, okay, well, you know, I got to abide by this deal, even though you're not living up to it? I mean, what are you talking about? Well, you know, this I think Tom, on a, even you know? on a simpler level, it could describe the deal if it doesn't like it it's not like there's some court that's buying it's not a ratified treaty yeah, yeah it's not a ratified exactly. treaty yeah yeah so well, i mean i i mean by president but, but you're right. they, had America, every, yeah. they had every excuse to get out of it because the taliban wasn't well so if they wanted an excuse to, to cast it aside and do something the reality is that they just wanted out too so they just they just you know use that as an excuse i mean look how long are they going to blame trump for foreign policy failures. I mean, we're going to hear this 20 years from now. I mean, look, I'm not a big fan of a lot of his foreign policy, particularly yeah, in look, Afghanistan. I mean, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I, there's nothing to defend on Afghanistan, right. so I'm not, I mean, but but the point is, like, forget about, I mean, it's just that deal in particular, forget about Trump for a second, just saying that deal, you know, we had to, we had to agree to that, we had to abide by it. I mean, it just to me, it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm going to have to write, I'm going to have to write, write about that deal again, you know, because it's just so, I think the, I think the absurdity of it is just, I don't think people understand how absurd that whole thing is. Um, and, you know, again, the only thing you can point to right now is that the Taliban, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, refrained from attacking American forces since February 29th, 2020. And they were happy to do so because the U.S. is retreating. And all they did was then use that operational capacity against the Afghan government, which the U.S. government has been throwing under the bus now for quite some time. So, uh, you know, obviously that all looks pretty grim uh, going forward. Um, I would just wrap up here by saying, you know, look, the Taliban senior leadership has released several new statements again in recent weeks. You had one from a couple of statements from Sir Judin Akani, Siraj Akani, the deputy mayor. He had a statement by Habatullah Akhundzada. Look at those statements. They're just peppered with references to the Islamic Emirate, you know, peppered with it. The idea that they're, they've been fighting for something other than resurrecting the Islamic Emirate is nonsense. You know, one of the things you and I have done for the years, Bill, is just count the times they reference Islamic Emirate in a statement. I did that keyword search for you on the Habatul Akhundzadas, and who is the Emir of the Taliban. It was at least 15 times, yeah. you know. I remember but, doing you know, one yeah. where they it was like 21 was times like, or something. I just it's If people don't think this is what they're fighting for, I, it's – I'm tired of this. Talk talk about being tired of something, writing up how the Taliban says it wants an Islamic Emirate. I mean, goodness, they've done it so many times. It's just 
I roll my eyes when I read these statements that come out. And yet, and yet, the senior U.S. military, political, uh, diplomatic, and and military leadership has pretended that they want something other than that, right? I mean, this is again where it just doesn't make any damn sense. I mean, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, we've just there's that when we write we write the book on all this. I started collecting examples of this. Um, you know, it just it, it it gets to be redundant and repetitive so so quickly. They you know, think the Taliban is going to participate in democracy, and here's words that Taliban has used. And I'm just going to give you a couple of them that they've used to describe as democracy: un-Islamic, satan, which is probably the worst one, right? Because everything is in their in their scheme certainly yes. is, yeah. Uh, satanic, demonic, right? Like then they call the Afghan government, which cooperates with the U.S. Puppets. Um, I'm forgetting all of the fun terms. Impotent. Apostate. They apostate. claim they're apostates. Yep, right. Yeah. I mean. This is what they think. I mean, they're t- and they're not just writing. It's not some guy that went off the handle. And then you'll see people say, "Well, Voice of Jihad really isn't a the official publication." It's oh, I saw. I saw there, there was that reporter. I think it was the Wall Street Journal reporter. Yeah. They had that. Look how they said the Voice of Jihad doesn't really speak for the organization. Oh, really? On. I mean, yeah, it only like, publishes yeah, yeah. statements. Signed by Hakanzada and Siraj Khadi, and it's it's it'll tell you it's it's official. It's it's absurd. This is the level. Yeah, this is all. This is all. Well, this yeah, is what we deal with, and, and yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look again I, to to anybody out there who does a post mortem on this and wants to know what went wrong. You got to take a clear eye on all this, and when you start imagining your enemy, wish casting that your enemy is something other than what he is, uh, the game's over. And that's what we we realized that was going on some time ago. So yeah, when did we? When do you think it. we finally caught like the when we? It's a long time, Tom. Right? Yeah, I mean, look, you and I, you and I begrudgingly, begrudgingly supported the 2017 uh, small bumping in forces in Afghanistan. We did not support the surge, by the way, under President Obama because we thought that was doomed to fail and was going to be a waste of resources, and it was. Oh, and by the uh, way, we, more that was uh, I. I didn't support that because it was clearly cynical political move and more yeah, troops totally. died during that surge during that, period right. than at any point like actually more than half of the u.s casualties occurred during that and it was destined to fail and we knew it and that's why we couldn't support that they they died and injured for something america's political leadership didn't really believe in yeah. that's why you're saying cynical that's what that's what bothered, always bothered us about that was that they were going to surge forces in afghanistan for something they didn't really believe in was necessary to do you know and this is why you have to be very skeptical about all the stuff going forward. You know, it was very, it was very cynical. Um, but then we begrudgingly supported the increase, uh, the small bump in forces in 2017, mainly because it was, it wasn't going to be any, any, a similar type of surge with large numbers of American forces going into trying to clear and hold rural areas. We knew that that was, this was a very different thing that was occurring in 2017. It was a very provisional, sort of move to try and give one last attempt to stand up the Afghan government. Uh, and it, w- it was, you know, our sources said it's one last attempt. And then, of course, that didn't even make it throughout a term of President Trump's, uh, President Trump's first term. By, tw- by 2018, he had pulled the carpet out from underneath that, and it was over. So, and and as soon as, you know, we knew, we knew in 2017 that this this was probably going to end in an American and, and uh, a defeat, I would say. Um, by 2018, we were certain of it. Yeah. Is what I would say. I think we published, know, so. we published an op-ed in the New York Times saying the war is lost. Right, Tom? Uh, well, the title of it was, uh, which we didn't choose because that's one of the things people don't get. Sometimes we get cri- you get criticized. Yeah, you know, for the but, title. You don't. But the title, and I'm like, I didn't choose the title. You know, I mean, what can I do? Uh, but it was, "Are we losing Afghanistan again?" That was in 2015. 
Um, wow. So we, we, yeah, it was twenty, it was twenty fifteen. We, I mean, we, we knew this thing was going south a long time ago, you know. So I mean, it, that's part of why we. But know, back to Mike, when did we like know? When did we finally like kind of get the 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 clue on the leadership that it was just completely that this thing was not? Gonna, I think it had to be somewhere around at the surge time, right? Like we just knew that. This yeah, I mean, was I mean, there, there, I, let's save this for another podcast. We'll talk about yeah. all the leadership failures and all this because sure. there's. I just outline it for history and for anybody who, who wants to try and get figure out what went wrong here. There's just a whole big long story here. I mean, there's 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 so many different aspects to how this thing failed. Uh, you know, uh, but ultimately at the root of it, and this is what people get mad at us for saying, and I've gotten some anger directed at me. And there's people, military public affairs officers, who have been angry at us for years about this. I don't care. Like, there's there's just incompetence here that just needs to be exposed and understood. And you know, we can't as Americans, you can't have this type of thing going forward here. So you just can't like if, if we're going to salvage, you know, how, how we do things in the future, uh, it's, it's got to recognize the errors of the past, you know? Absolutely. And you know, Tom, I'm more tolerant of just generalized and like you can fix failures, mistakes, right? Uh, you know, we all make them. I mean, some are worse than others, sure. but there's the mistake. And then there's the, you know, the intentional misreading of the situation, not, intentionally misunderstanding what the Taliban's goals and objectives are and, and, you know, intentionally misunderstanding Al-Qaeda's presence, things of that nature, intentionally pulling the rug out on the surge, doing a surge and, you know, doing a cynical surge is what I kind of described that. So, you know, we could be a little more tolerant. You could replace just bad leadership, but when the leadership is, is in on the, on the big con, there's no way out of that. And that's where I feel the leadership has been in the U.S. military for, what, at least 10 years now. We'll save. On that, cheer, on, on that cheery note, uh, thank you to our listeners for listening to this episode of Generation Jihad. We, I was going to say this week's episode, but we're so sporadic now in terms of what weeks we police one. We'll, that we'll call it this I won't month, say this week's Tom. How's that? This yeah, we'll call, we'll call it – I'm just going to say this episode. You know, we, we, are, we are trying to get on a more regular schedule. Uh, you know, anyway. Uh, please do subscribe to the show as sporadically as it is produced. <laughs> and as, you re- as a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you again, I was going to say next week, but, you know, whenever. No, we're going to do next week, Tom, I promise. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. All right.